Welcome to this Helix event on the technique of memory. Uh, we are going to start uh, by, with a movie done by uh, Vivian Silvera. And after that, we'll do the introductions. Thank you, Vivian, for this wonderful movie. Uh, before I introduce John Williams, who is responsible for organizing coming up with the idea and organizing this panel, I'd like to tell you about our future programs. On April 8, we have Habitable Worlds, Life Beyond Earth, organized by Professor Chris Impey. April 22nd, Shakespeare Forever, organized by Ellen Gilbert. May 13, Crisis in Higher Education, organized by John Chun. September 20th, Emotions, organized Professor Catherine Elkins, October 21, Permanence and Impermanence of Mathematical Concepts, Michael Harris organized that, and November 4, Planetary Intelligence, organized by David Greenspoon. Uh, John Williams, I'm going to be brief because some of you or all of you have this, is a, a professor of English film and media at Yale University, and he is the author of uh, the book, the, the Buddha in the Machine, Art, Technology, and the Meeting of East and West. Uh, the book was won the 2015 Harry, Harry Levin Prize from the American Com Comparative Literature Association. And he just completed a manuscript titled World Presence, The Trouble with Mindfulness, which details the rise of a new metaphysics of presence that has emerged within the multi-million dollar wellness industry, a metaphysics with important consequences in how we read literature and philosophy today. So, John Williams. Thank you, Ed, and thank you all for coming out today. This is, uh, it's wonderful to see you. Um, I'm going to introduce our panels, uh, our panelists. I'll begin first with Vivian Silvera, whose film we just watched, and I think we'll have some things to say about that during our, our conversation. Um, Vivian is an award-winning artist and filmmaker. Her videos have been installed at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, MGM National Harbor, University of Mary Washington, uh, Davidson College for Culture and the Cube Art Project, Union Bank, and exhibitions include uh, the Art Basel Miami, Art Week Berlin, the Edward Hopper House, the Albright Knox Gallery, the Dahesh Museum, the Master Museum, and the Museo de la Ciudad Mexico. Her film, Sea Memory, that we just saw, premiered at the Imagine Science Film Festival. Her sculpture, The Fault, was made for the Women's Studies Department at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where it is permanently installed. Um, she's a two-time recipient of the Kaim Gross Award, winner of the Valerie Delacorte Award, and the Harriet Whitney Frischmuth Travel Award from the National Academy Museum of Design. She also won the Award of Excellence in Painting at the Edward Hopper House Museum. Uh, Victoria Losola is an author and editor with 20 years of journalism, publishing, and digital media experience. 
She's been a founding member and senior manager of groundbreaking teams at Twitter, Condé Nast, and NBC. In addition, she has taught seminars and undergraduate writing classes at Columbia University, the University of Arizona, and the University of Montana. She's also an editor and ghostwriter with particular experience in memoir, fiction, sociology, philosophy, and psychology manuscripts. Her essays and articles have been published in the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, The Onion, uh, The New Yorker's website, and many other print and online publications. Her writing has also been acquired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Thomas J. Watson Library, as well as Yale University's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. She earned her BA and MFA from Columbia and is the author of three nonfiction books that have been published in both America and abroad. Uh, finally, Sam McDougall earned his BA in Neuroscience and Behavior from Vassar College in 2009 and his PhD in Neuroscience and Psychology from Princeton University in 2018. After completing a postdoctoral fellowship at UC Berkeley, Sam joined Yale's Psychology Department in 2020 as an assistant professor. Sam's lab uses behavioral experiments computational modeling, neuroimaging, and neuropsychology techniques to study motor memory and motor learning. One of the lab's main interests is how neural systems that support higher level cognition intertwine with lower level control of the human body, the so-called cognitive motor interface. Sam enjoys playing and performing old-time folk and bluegrass music as well. We're going to be playing a show together in New Haven later next month. Uh, and actually, the um, the, the final panelist, Dr. Uh, Daniela Schiller, um, last but not least, is professor uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, the Nash Family Department of Neuroscience, and the Friedman Brain Institute at the uh, Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Her research is focused on how the brain represents and modifies emotional memories. Uh, Schiller got her PhD in Tel Aviv University and then continued to do a postdoctoral fellowship at New York University. She joined Mount Sinai in 2010 and has been directing the Laboratory of Affective Neuroscience since. Her lab has delineated the neural computations of threat learning, how the brain modifies emotional memories using imagination, and the dynamic tracking affective states and social relationships. Schiller is a Fulbright Fellow and a Kavli Frontiers of Science Fellow and has been the recipient of many awards, including the New York Academy of Sciences uh, Blavatnik Award and the Klingenstein Simons Fellowship Award in the Neuroscientists. So please join me in welcoming all of our roundtable panelists for our conversation. Our conversation will be very free-flowing. Uh, we'll have some time for questions at the end as well. So if anyone would like to get started, perhaps on some topic that's interesting to them. I just want to say to, to Vivian how I love your movie. Um, you kind of listen, you have conversation with scientists, and you listen to the underlying intuitions, all the stuff that doesn't go into the scientific papers because there's no you know, actual data, but you, you get really the essence of it and put it all in the movie. So I think it's, it's A lot very of moving. commentary narrated by me was Daniela, actually, who I pursued vehemently <laughs> until she agreed to let me interview her, um, right? It took a year from when I first reached out to her, but I had just started this strange stop motion animation experiment. I didn't know where I was going with it. 
and I was reaching out to neuroscientists, and you saw hopefully the list of who I got to interview, which really was my favorite part of the process. And I had a mind-blowing interview with Daniela in her office, and um, really moved me so much. And so a lot of that narration about the art of storytelling, and we don't have to be a slave to our past, and every all of our behaviors are, all of our memories are carved into our behavior, that's all Daniela's words. Um, so, yeah, so we have a, yeah. and I call her for every single project now. <laughs> because I'm fascinated by memory and imagination, which is, as an artist, that's what I'm working on in my new films, and that's exactly what you're working on in your lab. Do you want to talk about memory and imagination? Um, well, we had uh, an experiment to see whether instead of actually being exposed to triggers in the environment, we can imagine them and whether that will create a change in the brain and in our behavior. Uh, so we created a situation in the lab where uh, people learn to be afraid of something, like a tone that um, predicts something unpleasant. And usually what you would do in something like exposure therapy, you would present that tone again and again until you understand that the tone means nothing. But we asked the participants to just imagine it. Um, and they did, repeatedly. And then when we compare the two groups that were actually exposed to the stimulus versus those that imagined it, we saw the same reduction in their fear response and also similar neural activation. So with imagination, we could change the, the neural representation of the memory, what underlies our reactions. It's incredible. So my understanding was that there's no difference if you look at it neurologically between an imagined experience and an experienced experience. Is that, am I right about that? Uh, there are, or there's got there are a lot of similarities. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same. Um, you see uh, the hippocampus, which is the brain region that's very important uh, for memories, that is also active when you imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see widespread systems. Uh, one of them is called the default mode. It's a, a neural system that is active when we have uh, introspection, internal thoughts. You usually see it uh, kind of coming online. Uh, almost like to block the external stimulation. And this is a, part of it is a system that you see also when you imagine. Can I interrupt to say that? I think that's one of the things I find most fascinating about the film is the way that it dramatizes and performs that sort of neural reimagining that happens within a memory that people tend to think of as a recording device, as you say, but that in fact is a kind of rearticulation of something that's happened. The film itself has these beautiful images of paint that uh, accrues but also leaks and uh, fades at the same time. And there's a real um, sort of painterly uh, quality to the narrative, I noticed. And to me, that's why I think the, the question for today about the techne of memory, that is the art, the way that imagination, the way that we engage with um, objects and tools and works of art in the world affect the way that we imagine memory, the way that we function with memory as people. Um, but I think this has a lot to do with uh, neural circuitry, but it has a lot to do with how we imagine art, what art can do for us, um, how we learn, how we experiment, how we, be, how we become creative in those moments. Um, I remember 
this being something that Sam and I taught a course together at Yale called The Science and Culture of Memory. And one of the things that we uh, found so interesting was just how much um, the same processes that rely on, uh, that we rely on for memory are part of what we rely on for creativity, but also imagining the future. That there's a real way in which memory has an impact on how we think about futurity. Yeah, right, as Daniela just mentioned, some of the classic work in neuropsychology involves patients with damage to the hippocampus, this region we often <clears throat> equate with mm -hmm. explicit memory. Um, and that's true, and that is a classic neuropsychological finding replicated many times, but another finding, perhaps replicated less, but I think pretty well accepted, is that those same patients who have damage to these areas involved in memory actually have trouble imagining futures. Mm -hmm. So you prompt these patients to um, imagine a certain type of scene in the future and a certain thing happening to them or happening to, to other sort of stimuli. And they have trouble with that, and the trouble they have looks similar to the trouble that they have reconstructing the past, which puts a kind of a fine point on what John's saying, that this, this act of creation that we think of when we think of making art or imagining a technological future, writing a sci-fi uh -huh. novel, whatever, um, is similar to memory retrieval and the uh, concept of memory retrieval as creation, which of course, as the movie beautifully mentioned, is, is actually um, affects memories, right? So when you retrieve memories, it's not a passive film uh, uh -huh. spool that you play, right? It's a, it's a um, quite invasive act. Uh. I wanted to bring Victoria in because I think what I explored, what I explore in painting and in film, she explores in her work as a writer. And she wrote this memoir, This Is How You Say Goodbye. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the journey you went on. Well, I think I'm, I'm more curious, you know, listening to each of you. I see the ways in which not having a memory or having a traumatic memory can negatively impact your ability to imagine or to think in an expansive way about the future. But I also wonder about the ways in which we get attached to our memories and the narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and who the other people in our lives are in the world as a whole potentially works to our detriment in sort of limiting what we can imagine for our future because we're basing it on these memories that we already have. And I don't know if that's something that your work has looked at or explored of, are we ever held back by having too strong of a memory or an attachment? And as someone who has written memoirs, you, know, you spend a long time <laughs> sort of in the bubble of what's happened to you in the past. And at a certain point, you know, it's like, is this, I, I think I'm doing something productive, but maybe I'm not, or maybe there's a line I've crossed. I think you're trying to construct a story, as, as Danielle and I have talked a lot about, like memories, fragments that you piece together to, to make into a story. And I think in your first memoir, um, you had all these pieces of childhood, because Victoria wrote this when she was very young, and right out of college, right? Yes, I started it in college. Yeah, so she mm -hmm. had this childhood where her father 
died of AIDS-related suicide and when she was quite young, and she had all, as we talked about in an interview, um, you had all these pieces, these fragments of memory you said that didn't add up to anything. And I think when you were working on the memoir, you were trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together so you could tell a story rather than just have pieces of fragments that, that didn't sort of add up to something. Don't you think that's what the, the purpose was? Yeah, I think that was part of it. And I think also in my particular instance, it was both my own memories, but also trying to understand the memories of someone who was no longer here to speak for himself. And when I knew him was so heavily medicated that even the memories we were making, was I wasn't necessarily making them with the person that he might have been under healthier circumstances. Um, and so there was also, I think right from the get-go, there was actually sort of a lack of trust around the memories that I did have. Um, and and sort of, and also the right, what right did I have to some of his memories in terms of finding, you know, lovers of his from when he had been very young and wanting to speak to them, but also recognizing that just because, you know, I had sort of a sad story didn't mean that they had to tell me, <laughs> you know, or share these things that were very personal and private to them, or, you know, even if it did, uh, include my dad and uh, you know I imagine many of you are parents in the room you know there may be things that you wouldn't necessarily want your children to know or if they did know you would want to be the one to get to share them um, and so I think that was you know the the power uh, power and control and who owns the rights to memories uh, to memory is something I'm also very interested in and I think when you think about it in the context of art and, and oftentimes there's a public component to art, and so you're putting it out there to be shared, you know, then it's no longer just your memory. And now you're putting your memory out there and someone's gonna have a memory of experiencing mm -hmm. the art of your memory and an interpretation that may or may not, uh, you may or may not appreciate or want. And, you know, I find that with, you know, interacting with readers of my work of, it, you know, once once you publish it, it, it belongs to the reader or the viewer, and you have to be okay with that. There seems to be an interesting paradox in the way you're describing memory and the way that we experience it as well, which is that uh, there's an inherent fogginess to memory that when we create a narrative, sort of uh, allows for a coherence that may not actually be there in the mind. When we construct a That's story right. or a narrative, we're giving... I often think of this with regard to my dreams. If someone says, what was your dream? And I tell a story about my dream, in some way I'm betraying the weirdness of it by imposing a kind of narrative voice with grammatical you know, mm -hmm. coherence on it. And I think that that's probably true of memory as well, that when we create a narrative, we're solidifying something that's inherently uh, just awash in plasticity and malleable in our minds. On the other hand, this is the other part of the paradox, art seems to defamiliarize memory for many of us. If we witness a great film or some work on memory, it allows us to revisit that sort of sublime weirdness that memory actually contains for us as we, as we try to navigate our way through these depths of the conscious and unconscious mind. So I'm really fascinated by the way that this work in particular that we saw today, but many, many works of art I notice, um, dance across this paradox of creating coherence, but also uh, defamiliarizing it 
making us feel sort of weird and interesting in that sense. Yeah, yeah. that's part of uh, maybe the function of memory to, um, to have coherence, mm. uh, but at any given moment. And maybe this is one of the reasons that memories are changing, because each time you, you reconstruct them, it depends on the information you have now. Um, so it will have a different shape because it has to fit mm -hmm. the, the current uh, conditions. And I, w I wonder if we could expand this as well, speaking of current conditions. Uh, one of the topics that we hoped to address in this panel was the, the question of, in some ways, the digital universe, the ways that we are more and more exteriorizing our memory into objects that we carry with us or that contain information in the cloud. Um, so many of us, for example, no longer remember phone numbers because we no longer have to. That information has been externalized somehow. And the anxiety that one can feel, for example, when losing a phone, I think is, is also illustrative <laughs> of just how much of our memories exist outside of us now. And that there's a really um, important way in which it's, it's useful to think about what that does to our our sensibilities and our memories? Yeah, okay, go ahead. No, Say more. I was thinking about when I can't find my phone, I feel like mm -hmm. I lost my memory. Right. I think that's the same kind of panic. I, I think you just crystallized that yeah. feeling for me. Yeah. I feel like that conversation is as much about phone numbers <laughs> as it is about skills. And that actually mm -hmm. what people really mourn is that they don't know their way around anymore, for example, because of GPS, right? There's a skill that mm. they used to have to sort of, you know, polish and look at the Rand McNally accent, uh, uh, maps, maps yeah. often, yeah, yeah, Atlas, sat sitting on the dashboard collecting dust. But um, I'm curious about that aspect too, right? Because on the one hand, we mourn this. We say, oh, I used to be able to get around and now you know, I can't do it for shit because of this GPS. But on the other hand, we say, well, maybe now I've allowed myself to learn other skills. I've freed up my time somewhat. Um, and as someone with a three-year-old, time is, to me, just constantly slipping through my finger, fingers. So, I was thinking the same thing. I was going to ask you two, in the neuroscience world, do we have more space now for other things? I think we uh, incorporate things. Uh, this is a nice example I like about the calculator. Right? Uh, we didn't have a calculator, but and now we have it. It didn't hurt us, actually. It really helps. Right? So you, you do incorporate these machinery into our abilities. It's like our external consciousness, right? Totally. Is it a coincidence that the campus also has a map-like function? Actually, yeah. I mean, some of the famous work on what we've lost with GPS, in humans at least, is studying London taxi drivers who spent many years, have to spend many years studying what's called the knowledge, which is a sort of poetic name uh, for what's now lost. Uh, so learning every street and every corner and every turn, and they have to pass this onerous test to get their license. And actually, it's been replicated fairly many times at this point that areas of areas of their posterior hippocampus, um, and actually the specific lo location within the hippocampus is important for technical reasons, but areas of the posterior hippocampus actually enlarge when you to spend a lot of time studying a map. So London taxi drivers, you can actually follow them before they learn the knowledge, till many years later when they've considered to have the knowledge, 
and you see this increase in the gray matter volume, so the amount of neurons doing stuff in the posterior hippocampus, the exact region you're talking about. Yeah, yeah there's uh, something very interesting about that map-like representation. So we start with the physical space, uh, and you map the location, but uh, what we learned in recent years is that this type of machinery in the brain actually applies to all manner of spaces. Just like memory, actually. Memory and spatial navigation are in the hippocampus. So what is memory, if not you know, a collection, a sequence of scenes that you link across contexts? That's also a form of mapping. And since then, uh, research discovered that that type of mapping occurs also in sound space, uh, even social space, the way we map the location of others relative to ourselves. So the mapping of physical space is really just one case of that machinery of linking between components. When speaking of technical memory, it's become increasingly strange and interesting in the, in the processing of digital information. Um, I was thinking earlier about how when I first got a computer, someone would ask how much memory is there. It was in reference to um, this sort of blank storage capacity. It didn't contain anything. It, was, it would be the equivalent of someone saying, how much memory do you have? Well, I have 50 blank books on my shelf, so I have a lot of memory. <laughs> we tend to think of memory as having content, as, as having kind of intentionality to it. Um, whereas in the computational world, it was described as this kind of storage capacity. Increasingly, however, with AI, and I think particularly with what people are talking about a lot right now, which is this chat GPT, the processual quality of memory in computation has become more and more eerie, more and more strange and interesting to the way that we um, think about uh, what machines can do and what we can do uh, by contrast. Um, but of course, all of these models, all of these are artificial intelligence models, are taking vast amounts of data and using it in a kind of mnemonic way to predict what the next line of information should be. So the pr processing of data now by computers is so intense and so vast that it's becoming predictive in really kind of uncanny ways for the way we think about our own memories. So the memory of the computer is to predict the future, which is what most neuroscientists say now, right? That, that memory is as much about, or more so, about navigating the present and making a plan for the future than it is about being an accurate recording of the past. Yeah, but in the context of a human being, it's uh, in the service of the organism, right? Um, we retain information and we retrieve it to make sense of the environment and to make predictions in order to survive, you know, to, to function best in the environment for our own uh, organismic needs. ChatGPT, uh, I don't know what the, what the motivation of that uh, machine learning is yet. Uh, right, it's memory towards a goal yeah. in, in living, living things, right? Yeah. And you have to wonder, of course, on its face, we, our intuition is that these lar large language models don't have goals except just optimizing some, to use the jargon, cost function, which in this case is predicting really well what the next word or phrase in a sentence is. I, I thought that uh, when you were earlier talking about memory, you were talking about memory, and I think in the, mo in the movie, in the film, 
it, it, it was specific or more frequently referring to what we call autobiographic memory. And that's different from memory of knowledge. So uh, it's not very clear uh, memory to what degree autobiographic memory helps you navigate the future, especially when you say every time you access autobiographic memory, it may be changed. Uh, so what is the, uh, what makes it then that uh, the people we know with all their autobiographic memories even though the autobiographic memories change, they remain the same. So if I met Vivian 10 years from now, she may be a little bit different, but mostly will be the same. So how, how is that explained in terms of uh, the neuroscientific world and any other explanation? I think uh, if Vivian will be the same, uh Maybe it's a philosophical question, or... <laughs> yeah, we... <laughs> um, I mean, I think we're constantly changing, although... And we are our changing selves. Uh, I mean, there's some coherence uh, in our representation, but um, that coherence is dynamic. Well, I agree that we are changing, but it seems to me that we are changing because we are on, in an ongoing way, you ha we have other experiences. Yes. And that is different from autobiographic memory. So uh, wouldn't you say that in a way we are a product, not so much of our memories, but of our experiences, some of which we may be able to recall correctly or incorrectly, and a lot of which we don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very profound way uh, to say it, that we are, instead of saying we are the sum of our memories, we really are the sum of our experiences. And whatever you retrieve in the moment um, relates to what is it that you are now or experiencing now. We have triggers for memories. So for example, uh, if, you, if you retrieve something uh, negative that happened to you, um, it's not that this is who you are. It's like so something is happening now that is triggering it. And if you listen to that, you understand who you are now and why is it that you're retrieving it. And that memory might, uh, when you store it again, might modify, uh, might be modified because of that new experience. So um, when you listen to your memories, it's not really an interrogation of who you were. Uh, it's an interrogation of who you are now. Yeah, actually, one of the uh, psychiatrists that I interviewed, Dr. Paul Brody, who's spoken here before. Um, Who's that? Paul Brody, oh. psychiatrist. One of the psychiatrists that I interviewed really talked about how he had grown up feeling very bullied as a child in South Africa. And then when he shared that memory with a friend who had been at school with him then, but they hadn't been friends. Um, he now remembers that memory as if his friend was there with him. He wasn't alone. And I know that, Daniela, you've told a lot of stories about um, what you learned about your father. Um, Daniela's father was a Holocaust survivor, but, you know, and she's spoken about this on, on many, the moth, and many, she's told the story really beautifully many times, but how 
you learned something about him and that colored all the previous memories you had of him. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, if you're talking about uh, memories that are changing, uh, scientifically we call it the process of uh, reconsolidation. There's, a, there's an event that happens initially and you consolidate it, but each time you retrieve it, it can be restored again in a, in a modified way. And um, personally, my father was, um, who was in the Holocaust never talked about it. Um, so I never knew. And he was just this person, you know, I'm living with, and there's like this block that I don't know what's happening. And uh, just at one point, very close to the end of his life, he finally talked. And there's like a whole world uh, got exposed. And because I study reconsolidation, I was acutely aware of like the domino pieces, you know, how all the previous memories of him are being colored by that new information that I'm having. And I'm kind of desperately trying to remember how I thought about him before, just to document it scientifically, but it becomes a semantic memory. It becomes kind of just a, I know I thought about him differently. And it's, it's very interesting, once you kind of start to think of this the dynamically, uh, dynamic revisions of memory and you try to track them in your own life, it becomes a very interesting process of discovery. It's very hard to track it. I think it's very hard to hold on to what you previously thought about something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to, I guess I'm interested in holding it all somewhat loosely. Um, I keep coming back to, Daniela, what you were saying about the sharing of a memory or a story as a mean of connection, which is mm. absolutely true. And, and it was in tandem with John talking about uh, the sense of presentation that we have online um, with our posts on social media or whatnot, and obviously that's something that is given a lot of page space these days. But I think it's also true that when we share a memory, it's not that it's false or an intentional misrepresentation, but it is a representation. There's a way in which we choose to share that memory with people or the way in which we choose to dress or show up in a space. Um, and so when we, you know, talk about these kind of fake glamorous lives on Instagram or, you know, TikTok or whatever, it's not like that got invented with social media. <laughs> you know, that's been part of human nature for a very long time. And so I think to me there's this inherent tension and that sometimes we think, you know, all these things that have been changed by the digital and in some ways that's true and the way we remember things and how we edit things and how many characters something is, is absolutely going to shape us in ways we don't even know yet. And yet at the same time, you know, I think human beings are human beings and we sort of come back to some sort of default. Um, and, and I'm always leery of, you know, what what your father shared or what anyone shares with us, maybe the new information is valuable, but it's but also what's valuable is the way in which they chose to share that or the thing that they remembered and shared as opposed to the thing that wasn't said. Um, and, you know, it's kind of the, the white space on the page can be just as important. Victoria, could I ask a question as a, as a writer? I often, I've talked to a lot of writers and quite often you hear the phrase like, I didn't know what I was thinking until I started to write it down. Yeah. Right? And I wonder, since you write a lot about memories, memoir, I wonder if there's a, a sort of a, an analog for that in writing about memory, that you don't know what you remember 
until you write it down. That the, maybe the, it, I want to know if there's something interesting about writing something that both slows the mind but also reaches into the memory in ways that, you know, if you're just simply telling someone something casually that you remember, it might be a different kind of experience. Yeah, I think that's an excellent notion to explore. Uh, I would say that when you write something down or perhaps when you paint or you know whatever your medium might be or even to compose a piece of music, um, if it's coming from a place of memory or recollection, it almost gives you the ability to have some awareness around it because you're creating this distinction between yourself and it. And so when it's inside you and it's swirling and whatever and you have this, you know, you're having a whole emotional reaction to it, possibly a physical reaction to it, and then when you set it outside yourself, well, now it's in a place of curiosity because now it's like, well, well, that's interesting. And you can play with it in this different way and, it's, and because it now feels separate from you, it's a little bit easier to not be so identified with it. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, this is certainly not my area of expertise, but, you know, well, I'd be very curious to know as someone who's just been writing about mindfulness, but I know that in therapy, one of the things that is often suggested is to just write down your fears or, you know, say it out loud to someone and that that can take some of the bite or the sting out of it. Um, and I think in my process of writing, um, it allows me to, it feels safer, mm. because now I feel like I have the ability to, um, now I can play with it, rather than it sort of playing with me. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice, there's a real autonomy to that, like there's mm -hmm. kind of, it feels like you're claiming a sort of identity in the process of, of putting it outside of you, interestingly. Can writing also break rumination? Because so much of my time retrieving mm. memories is just ruminating on That's just me, I guess. I'm say more about what anxious, you mean by... Anxious, Upper West Sider. Say, <laughs> say more what you mean by ruminate, ruminating. Well, just right, just kind of, you know, playing memories on loop and mm. sort of exploring how you, maybe how you could have behaved differently if that's that kind of memory. But I, I wonder if writing helps... I'm curious, I'm kind of asking more than yeah. theorizing if writing maybe helps because you need to have some momentum when you write. Maybe it helps you navigate through memory rather than just sort of hang out in one spot. Yeah. It, it may help. I think it, it may also not help. And one of the questions I have for that might, I think, speak to some of the other concerns we're having is what are the structures, um, institutions, corporations, and so on, that curate that exteriorization of memory? You know, rumination can happen just about any time you let your mind wander. Uh, but to put it outside of you, either into a work of writing or onto an app or to um, in some kind of film, you're putting it outside yourself. And the difference, I think, is that in writing, that autonomy, that sort of volition remains close. It remains intimate. It's part of that. Uh, you, you own something about that as it comes out of you. But when memories are exteriorized into vast amounts of um, digital uh, platforms that that in some ways, you know, I always find it so interesting when Facebook delivers me a memory. It's a cue. You know, yeah, they say, they say, here's what you were doing, you know, seven years ago. And, uh, you know, quite, if you've been divorced, you say, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's great. Or, you know, it, it, these can be, you know, very interestingly um, owned in a way. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe something that you, you know, and this is another question that we're having from the beginning, and that is that how much control uh, over the way that we remember do we have? Particularly because remembering is an act of reimagination. Um, how much force of our own control do we have over that? Maybe before there's an answer to that, I think it's, it's tied into the question of life experience playing a role in who we are. Mm -hmm. Part of the experience is also interactions that we have with others who remind us who we are in one way or another. Yeah. Because right? you remember yeah. what happened to us the other day, you know. For sure. Um, and they, I have a feeling that it helps to sustain a sense of some continuity in your own personhood because other people keep... Yeah. Now it's been exported. Into right? someone else, Into yeah. Into some gigantic space. Yeah. And what effect might that have? Just to go back to your question. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that raises is the idea of collective memory, right? And the fact that when we have memories, often we share them, um, even if they remain um, unarticulated. They're there in some ways. So we can both exteriorize into these structures, but into uh, groups of, of loved ones or people or uh, associates. Well, actually, A.O. Scott, I think, just stepped down as a film critic at the Times. Oh. At least I saw this on Twitter, so I need a fact check. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I think we his, have some nodding well, heads. I, I think his reasoning and his motive was that fandom had driven him crazy. Huh? This idea that there's these collective groups that all sort of share a narrative about how good this Marvel movie is or whatever right. whatever it is, and that it drove him nuts because he could write a bad... He could pan a a Marvel movie and have this entire collective group, this Borg of fans sort of go after him. I think that he was sick of that. And I think of that as being like the ex yeah. exteriorization, in this case more of like opinion, but you can, you can call it memory. I was also thinking about um, what Victoria said about um, externalizing the memory in writing. And I was thinking, don't you do that as a neuroscientist too? I mean, let's say, Memory is very ephemeral, it's very nebulous, it's very hard to grasp. Like we talked about in many of the interviews, it could be a feeling that washes over you. But I could shape the memory as an artist or take some control over memory. But I would think that studying memory as a neuroscientist would be also gratifying in that same way and that you're taking this thing that has this um, unconscious power over you and you're really breaking it down to its essence, and it's also giving you control in the way that creating an artwork about it would give you some control. Yeah, it helps to understand the machinery. If you understand the mechanism of how it works, you start also to kind of understand why, what's the purpose of it, and, and then you internalize it. But uh, I think kind of a thread that's going on here is really about um, autonomy. Mm. And because we keep saying how much control we have, and you're saying it's like okay, if I put it outside, now I have kind of a, a space. Mm. Um, and I think that's uh, one of the biggest, uh, I guess, myths about memory, which is that we don't have control over it. It just comes out of somewhere, and that's it. Uh, and if you have bad memories, you you really are doomed mm. if you think like that. But um, that process, I think, that Victoria is describing. Uh, and also by externalizing, you know, when you have monuments, these are triggers, mm. and they do force you to remember because they're triggers, right? Uh, so if you are surrounded by them, th that is a way of controlling 
the shared memory or the societal memory. But I think if we understand the mechanism of memory, we, we can understand that it's actually uh, something that is separate from us. And when you have uh, a memory, you can interrogate that process, you can observe it. You, so in a way, you separate the memory from yourself. You develop like a relationship with the memory. It's not, it's not who you are and, and you don't accept it as a given. Uh, the minute you kind of start to reflect on it, then you're doing something like an artist. Uh, you start observing it, you start... Um, and if there's no um, choice, if you are surrounded by triggers that you can't control, then you can um, start to maybe, maybe develop a, a, a manner of regulating your responses uh, to, um, yeah, not, not to not to let memory take control over you. So it's, it's kind of, it's a lot of introspection going on. It sounds mechanistic, but, but like an artist, it's really like a habit we develop. Uh, and, and we become actually, we, have, we gain more freedom in how we interact with our memories. I, I think you did that in your lab, because I remember you did this, I, I read about it, where you, you, you created a fear memory in your poor unsuspecting people, <laughs> and then you, you expose them to the trigger, but then you try to pair the trigger with some, you try to pair that same fear memory with something positive, like a beautiful flower or something, and you were able to change that association. Yep. Right, do you wanna talk about that? It is not about controlling memory. You know, you don't want to develop this rigid tendency. It's, it's about the fact that the memory doesn't control you. Yeah. And that's why when you say it, uh, that it, uh, it's about empowering, it's, it's a very, I think, um, beautiful way to say it. It reminds me of how much uh, people with uh, deficient memories or amnesia feel a sense of powerlessness mm -hmm. in the process. The, there's a really wonderful documentary online about uh, a guy named Clive Waring, who was a BBC uh, music director in the 1980s, and you know, came, had a virus in his mind, and it destroyed much of his hippocampus, and he cannot process any memory beyond six or seven seconds. So each moment for this man is as if he was awake for the first time. Now the doctors at the time told him to try to keep a journal, a diary, in order to track his experience and maybe help cope with some of the frustrations of it, but on the documentary they detail his journals and they are one entry after another of saying, first moment awake, first ever consciousness, first time I've seen my own writing, and then that'll be like you know 9.15 a.m., and then at 9.30 he'll say again, first consciousness, first time being awake, only he goes back and crosses out the earlier entry because he recognizes his handwriting, does not remember having written it, and thought, no, I could not have been awake then for the first time. This, is, th this now is truly the first time being awake. But it, and it don't, I mean, if you were to take some of the terror out of that, it almost sounds like a moment of nirvana, like continual wakefulness. But, but it's not, of course, it's a nightmare, right? He's, he's, ex he's in extreme suffering yeah. as he goes through this. Well, most babies come out screaming. <laughs> Without memory, yeah. No, that powerlessness of, I mean, that's an example of someone really not able to connect, to exteriorize themselves into writing and it prevents them from occupying a particular identity that's so important to, to, to who they are, really. 
that said, there, there are scenes in that documentary where his wife arrives. Oh, yeah, right. And he yeah. awakens into this giddy, joyful state and hugs her and kisses her. And yeah, she can go out for a sandwich and come back, and he's, it's he as if he's seen her. He's love. like, oh, my joy, my love. Yeah, yeah. It's like distance makes the heart grow fond. <laughs> like six, yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, that's hard for her, too, right? She, for decades, you know, to encounter your husband and have him think it's the first time again. Yeah, but I think that speaks to things that Daniela knows a lot about, which is the the multifaceted nature of memory. You know, so many discussions of mm-hmm. memory and thinking about memory is about explicit conscious time travel, right? The type of memory that we think of when we watch, Me- watch Memento, Christopher Nolan's rather excellent film, actually. Right. And I, I think um, it's it's if you look at the machinery of the brain, and actually if you write down an you know, ontology of the functions of the mind for memory, you'll find that that's actually one relatively modest aspect mm-hmm. of human memory. Mm. Um, I study maybe the most boring type of memory, which is memory for motor skills. Um, but I, I think if we think of who we are, I, I would say that my musician, being a musician, uh, a, a hobbyist musician, but I would still say that's part of who I am. But that's nothing to do with my conscious memory, really, and it's nothing to do with social experiences. It's something I practice. It's almost like a, a log of time I've spent doing something that I care about. But it exists in a in a place where, just like Clive Rearing, who was a musician himself, could yeah. see a sheet of music and play perfectly a piece that he had learned 20 years ago, even though seven seconds ago he just, to his mind, became alive. Um, I think when we define, when we do the I am my memory, we tend to kind of bias ourselves, I think, towards this conscious time travel aspect of memory rather than all these deep, implicit memories that whether it's our ability to play music or recognize the face of our loved one or right um, feel a certain way in a certain situation, um, I think that's really, I mean, as Freud would say, right, that we're, we're here in the psychoanalytic center, that's that's really the, the, the meat of, I, I would argue, yeah. really the meat of it. So the philosopher Paul Ricoeur once talked about how uh, originally the skeptic's argument against the existence of time was that time doesn't exist because it's made up of three parts. This is Aristotle's argument that there is the past, which no longer exists, the future that does not yet exist, <laughs> and the now, which can only be defined in terms of what it isn't, because no, how, no matter how thin you slice it, there will still be a, a thinner now. So the time then is made up of parts, none of which exist. Augustine's how do you write a memoir? That, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so Augustine's response was to say, no, actually, in every now, there is this threefold uh, stacked complication of having retained something just that's just happened, and also anticipating and expecting something that's just happening. So if you, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, you, you're not just hearing the do, re, mi that I articulated in that sentence, you're anticipating the la, ti, do to come. Right, so his argument was that, that the now that we experience is never simply a, a point in time. It's this very densely compacted sensibility that allows us to reach backwards and forwards and allows one to be almost in a kind of groove, as you're saying, right? If, you, if you've memorized a piece of music or your favorite song, often the lyrics can come rushing back to you as you're singing it. But if someone asked you, you know, what's the third lyric of the song, you would, you know, I don't know, right? But there's something about the processual quality 
of being into that part of, I guess, what's called working memory that allows you to, um, to be where you are now in that kind of complicated now. Yeah, I think this is where uh, we go back to coherence, mm-hmm. right? Because at any given moment, the past, the present, and the future should make sense. Right. right. Yeah, it's a big ten- tension in the neuroscience of studying memory is that there's sort of, there's a tension between two competing goals. One is to remember new novel experiences and log them, and the other is to generalize over your experiences and lump them together and connect them. And, you know, I think you can think of a lot of, um, certainly with these new AI technologies, um, there's, that's a big question there is of these, these sort of massively trained giant networks of information that seem um, to be full of a lot of specifics and they're good at that you know, logging somewhere in their memory very individual events. And the question now, and it seems like this is where progress is being made, which I think it makes everyone excited but also maybe anxious, is that now they seem to be building structures of knowledge that can sort of generalize. I know it's a little jargony, but if really this is sort of the critical thing that the, the hippocampus seems to be um, important at, at sort of at sort but of. Of course, we've all read that journalist who interacted with, with ChatGPT. Sydney uh-huh. right. <laughs> went completely off the rails. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think there were a couple of interesting things about that. One is this is something I think we're all going to confront. We wouldn't interact with a person the way you might interact with a chatbot because you could just repeat the same question over and over and over again. And I, my wife says I do that sometimes. <laughs> Not something we typically do. The, the chatbot seemed to almost respond to the next question as if it just woke up. Yeah. I, I, think, I keep thinking, too, about individuals who maybe are in a place of redemption. And mm-hmm. for them, their past or their choices or their memories are traumatic, not necessarily because of something that happened to them, but choices they made or things that they did to other people. And and not wanting someone in that moment to be limited or defined by their memories, to be able to say there there is a future that is not an equation of what you did in the past. And that doesn't mean that their memory or those actions can't help define that expansion and that new step. But I, I think that's an comp- important component, too, of what if you are ashamed of your memories? And what does that mean for your present and your future? Yeah, I think there are psychological theories that suggest that what we remember in autobiographical memory is, or actually what we remember at all is only what is self-relevant. So if you remember something that is could be ridiculous, you know, something you did in third grade or something you are ashamed of, it's because it's still relevant, because it tells you something about who you are or what you want to be or the fact that you were seen in a way that you wouldn't want to be seen. Um, so if you if you use that as kind of just to understand what is it that's bothering you yeah. and which is why you're being attacked by that memory, and then the memory becomes a tool, right? To uh, just some information that you can use to let it go, you know, or, or just process it in a different way. 
I think that phrase, uh, predict the past, is one that I love that. It's like almost a new operational definition of memory that I'll take with me from this Yeah, I think Sam, you know, Sam is using a lot of equations in his eyes. So computational narcissism, all information, right, is about probabilities. Right. And kind of um, making, finding the highest probability of an explanation, right, given evidence. So yeah, you can do that exactly toward the past as well, right? Mm. Right, it's all, it's all just some number between zero and one. So that's what makes these new, these new AI technologies so powerful. I mean, I, I think you can, it's good to be excited and anxious about them for many reasons, but they do behave, they are kind of making probabilistic predictions and in some superficial way, not maybe deep ways, but in some superficial way, that's what memory is, is doing too, so. Yeah, I think maybe just to um, kind of return to what Ed said before, there are different types of memories that I think we lump all of them together. And uh, some of them are those that we put on machines, you know, like a lot of semantic knowledge, facts, uh, memories of episodes. Mm -hmm. But um, procedural memory and motor memory is something that we carry with us. And also, maybe the most important type of memory is emotional memory. Uh, I don't see how you can have it yet uh, in a machine. And this is something that is very unique uh, for us, mm. having triggers that uh, build up emotion in you as if you, you were back in that, in that event and you feel it as if it's happening now. I think the um, example of the person in the documentary that demonstrated that, right, without having any yeah. explicit memory right. of his wife, he had that emotional memory. Yeah, from happiness, yeah. right, he was yeah. happy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, before this uh, wonderful roundtable becomes a memory, I want to see who would like to ask any questions of our panelists, and please come on up to the microphone. I think somebody, if somebody listens to this uh, roundtable, he would not really understand how come there are such books as Big Memory by Namco, or In Search of North uh, Memory of Proofs. I think that. Uh, your discussion was very good, very Wait, lightning. Want to interrupt for a second? You'll come up and, and ask the question or get your comment up here. Oh, if you don't mind. Goodness. Yeah, yeah. But you want to hear your words and it gets recorded for posterity. <laughs> it won't be remembered if you don't. Yes, uh, I have a mundane question about how we retrieve memories. Now, I'm not talking about emotional memories, more factual ones. Uh, before this started, I was trying to tell someone about this foundation that supported Helix in its early days, and I couldn't remember the name. While watching the video, it came to me, like 10 minutes on, the Templeton Foundation. And uh, this happens, I don't think it had anything to do with this film, because it happens to me all the time. I can't remember something. I'm walking or doing something else. I'm not consciously trying to remember that name, mm -hmm. but it comes to me anyway. What's going on in my brain at that point? <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever know. Yeah, I don't think we know, but we can speculate that um, at the very basic level, there's a kind of activation of uh, neurons that, that were active at the time of the encoding, and they represent the memory. And by trying to remember, of having like a, the tip of the tongue, uh, you get this process into motion. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you try to uh, make an effort to remember, maybe you interfere with that process, but when you let it go, that process kind of continues unconsciously. But, any any know, way I, I can improve that? <laughs> well, there, there, there is this famous Baker-Baker experiment where one of the things that people have often when they, when they have a block, 
that is. It's like on the tip of the tongue, I don't know what it is. It's quite often a name. And some scientists conducted an experiment where they gave people uh, a group of photographs and said their names. This is Mr. Baker. This is Mr. Cobbler. But instead of telling them, you know, the next group, they told them this person is a baker. This person is a cobbler. And they were much more capable of remembering the profession of the person, the exact same word of the person doing it. But it's because when you tell someone that they're a baker, you're saying quite a bit about their episodic life, right? Whereas a name is, yeah, it's, it's a, in a way you're handing off a narrative of some kind. And so all of these different parts of the brain become associated with it, so. Um. I think something that's really interested me in this conversation is that I feel like we've danced around the topic of trust, um, and we've had a lot of kind of conversations or you know kind of tangents about you know we can be creative with this thing, we can understand that when we bring a memory back, it's different, it's not the same, or when we create art, sometimes someone else helps us sort of realize something about it, um, and I'd love to hear kind of like how you guys think about um, sort of our, our our growing or different relationship to how we trust our memories, um, especially in this sort of externalizing memories versus internalizing. I think that we have this sort of internal ability to trust our memories because they are so variable, um, which really sounds to me almost, you know, kind of backwards. But we have this sort of like an immutable thing, uh, a one plus one equals two. We we trust that, but we don't really need to know anything more about it. Um, and when we externalize a memory, when we put a, a, a photo in Google Photos, it becomes this thing that becomes immutable. It's, be, it's just ones and zeros. And so we end up, I think, having this kind of different relationship with how we should trust a kind of growing or a different memory of what might have happened before and after that photo. Um, and I think that when we create art, I was really struck when you said, you know, when you externalize a memory and you create, you're writing it, there's this volatility to writing it. There's this ability that you can say, I'm gonna erase that word, I'm gonna change that word, I'm gonna edit that line down. And that, I think, allows us to kind of create a trust to it. And I, I would just love to hear kind of how you guys think about it. Um, I'm not sure we should trust our memories. <laughs> um, you know, I want, I, for me, the way I think of memory is that it's a, a conversation. So it's information, and it's not that you can't trust it, but I think it's valuable to be a little leery and to not make assumptions. Um, and I mean, we were talking earlier about uh, the power and the beauty of collective memories, but conversely, if you think that you share a memory with someone and then you share it, or it comes to pass that they don't remember it that way, you know, think about siblings growing up in the same household, you know, and inevitably they're gonna have different memories of the same event um, and how painful that can be. Um, that you, that you don't have, that it's not shared, that it's not collective. Um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that fandom becomes so powerful, right? Um, it's an agreed upon <laughs> notion. We're gonna double, triple down on it. Um, so I, yeah, I, I am almost, um, I don't know that I wanna trust my memory because in some ways when you decide that you trust something, 
does that stop the conversation? But then, well, it's definitive, and now I know this, and there's no room for growth, as opposed to, well, this is how I remember it in this moment, and, and then as a writer and a researcher, I want to have more conversations. I want to be able to be in a place, and this is hard, I think, for a lot of us for understandable reasons, where we are open to someone else's interpretation or open to a different memory or version. Um, and, to, and I think the work is in not finding a difference in memory to be threatening. Yeah, it, actually, it's really incredible uh, for me to listen to you because you know you come from from writing, from art, uh, and I come from from science and machines, and <laughs> to exactly the same conclusion. It's like almost uh, word for word. I was thinking that because I've interviewed both of you <laughs> separately. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, I, the words I would use is that uh, yeah, I treat it like hypothesis testing, you know, <laughs> and when I have a memory, it's like uh, okay. That's plausible. Uh, so you kind of uh, hold, it's like you hold multiple pasts at the same time and you kind of say, okay, this is probably the, has the highest probability, I'm, I'm going to go with that for now. Mm-hmm. But so it's like actually living with uncertainty uh, or with this like point that is surrounded by a cloud of uncertainty, but embracing it. And that's the liberating part. But, but before, yeah. before you can form a memory, before you have a memory, you have to pay attention. Right? So the first stage of cognition is attention, and then you only form a memory of the thing you've paid attention to. So in terms of different interpretations, of different, it's just that one person was paying attention to something, one sibling was paying attention to something, and one sibling was paying attention to something else. It doesn't invalidate any of the memories. It's just that where, where was your focus to form the memory? Right. That said, there there are true false memories. Yes, I, that's I think. True. I mean, there's a lot of ex- beautiful experimental psychology work. Much of by much of it by Elizabeth Loftus, a controversial figure. There's actually a very interesting New Yorker profile from of her from a few years ago. That's worth a read. But th- do you know the the yes. Lost in the Mall experiment? Do yes. People know this experiment. Yeah. I can quick quickly. Uh, describe it. It's been replicated actually last year very in a very large sample, so it's not one of those psychology experiments you feel bad you've mentioned because it didn't actually, was, wasn't actually real. So you take experimental subjects and you secretly go talk to some of their relatives, you can call those the confederates here, and you say, look, I'm going to tell Jane that when she was three, she was lost in the mall. And it was this kind of emotional thing for several to 10 minutes. She was lost in the mall, and yet the parents eventually found her. Um, the convenient thing is that because of, we're actually all amnesics in this room because of something called infantile amnesia. If any of us here claim they have a memory from below two years old, they're probably not telling the truth. <laughs> no offense. Um, and so, uh, anyway, you do this, and you, c- you can actually convince, like about a third of the people in these studies, you can actually convince them that it happened. And then a slightly lower pop percentage, I believe, maybe a fifth of them, you, they can actually report that they recall it consciously, mm-hmm. even though it's a complete fabrication. Um, now, I think, you know, you can overestimate that result and say, oh, are all memories are, no, it's not true, right? Most, most memories are tied to something real, but I think you're totally right about the attention point, and then I think even below that is that you actually, you can kind of do inception on well, people. Well, I think it's what Daniela was, has, I don't know if she said it now or she said it when I interviewed her first, emotion is the greatest 
greatest encoder of memory, right? Did we talk about that? So if you're imagining being lost at the, it's, Oliver Sacks wrote this uh, essay called Speak Memory based on Nabokov's book, Speak Memory, which is why I called mine See Memory a after both of those. But um, he wrote this piece in the New York Times book review where he was criticizing his own early memoir because he had written about being in London during the Blitz and then his old your brother told him, that was me. You were in the countryside. But he had written him such a vivid letter that conjured up emotions that he encoded them, he absorbed it as his own memory. And then, as an adult, wrote about it as his own memory. And I think this speaks a lot to just what we do as artists or just how we judge other people. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has this great piece, I forget which book it's in, but it was in the New Yorker at some point called Something Borrowed, where he talks about this playwright who was sued for plagiarism because she had written this play about this um, this investigator of serial killers, and it turned out that she had taken verbatim some of the language from this woman's memoir. And when he w actually went to meet her, he, he was much more forgiving because he had actually, um, she had actually also used verbatim some of his lines. And she sa he said, she's free to use it. She invented a whole brilliant play out of this that was beyond anything that came from my work or from her work. And she didn't have any memory. She had no knowledge that she was plagiarizing. And, and there have also been stories, I know Oliver Sacks talked about Helen Keller being taught, um, uh, being read, I guess, through Braille by Annie Sullivan in her hand stories. And then she was accused of plagiarism when she was an adult when she wrote stories that borrowed heavily from those early childhood stories she was told. But Sacks speculates that, you know, if you're literally sort of absorbing the story for her through touch, she had no idea that this didn't arise from her own thoughts. So this whole idea of absorbing certain stories, and like Je Daniela said, neurologically it often looks very similar when you imagine an experience, right? As when you actually experience it. So you're experiencing it in a way if your emotions are experiencing it, right? Yeah. True false memories, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another question? Yes, and, and it actually uh, acts upon what you're talking about, but uh, so the experiments in which you imagine something and it, it's almost identical to actually being triggered by the real thing, can you set up a system or procedure for yourself to do that and change yourself? Um, and is that observable in your neuroscientific, however you observe things in the brain? Is that change observable? Do you know what I mean? Like, can I set up a system? I, how long does it take? Does it take a month to change your memory, or how long does it take? 
And if I wanted to set up a system to change something and alter that memory so that I have become a different person, um, slightly, not completely, but slightly, yeah. I'm affected by this kind of yeah. Is that possible? Um, yeah, I mean, there are studies that, that show that, that uh, let's say you took, uh, you had uh, a negative memory and then you were instructed to write about it in a more positive way as opposed to writing something neutral. And you look at the pattern of that memory at the beginning and afterward, you do see the pattern changing. So, yeah, so th these are just a very controlled uh, experiments that indicate that, and in parallel, people use it uh, in everyday life and in the clinic. But exactly the timing, I think you have to work it out. Uh, <laughs> trial and error. <laughs> well, I guess I have a sort of complex response. Um, it's a little bit microscopic and telescopic. As I'm listening to the whole discussion, I realize that maybe our consciousness, maybe our inner life has changed by all the vast knowledge we have. The first thing when I came into this room, people have said, well, the brain is more elastic than you imagine. There's more information now than ever before. How much can the brain absorb? And then from there, I went to writers who speak about dialogue as the only true reality, that we know reality through the dialogical process. And then I go back to Cezanne, who said, well, I am who I am because I have a link in the history of art, the art history past. And then we go back to the self, and the self now seems such a vast assortment of things that there seems to be a great variety the way one can describe memory and the self. So the autobiographical world is then becomes a very complex world because all these factors are now entering. And one wonders how elastic are our brains to begin to encompass all the information we're receiving and all what we have read. I mean, we're adding on the cerebral part too because we're all made up of some kind of education. So where, you know, where the true self becomes a very complex but a very wonderful journey. I happen to be a painter, so I know something about that world. But um, painting, I think somebody mentioned an interesting thing about painting, I think you did, that the painter um, paints and then he destroys the painting and then he reimagines the painting. In other words, that process, the very complex process, includes so many aspects of who the self is. Because the self at first thought they knew something and then it, then it, it, this, then it this, uh, dissolves and then it comes back again. Anyway, the, the biggest point that I wanted to make is this elasticity and how are we all going to, we, we can't expect to encompass all the complexity of it. But I think dialogue is a very important part because that becomes part of the self. I just maybe. Before we answer, maybe we could ask the one more question and then we could try to answer both together because we have one more. Oh, mine is so different. Well, that's okay. Well, so I wanted to share one thing. I read this morning GPT 4 has no memory. So they reported, the reporter gave the example that he, I think it was he, asked the system to write a recipe. So, for Indian food or something. Well done. Then he asked the system to write a 2,000 page essay on, I don't know, bicycle riding. Then he said, so tell me the recipe. And the machine couldn't remember the recipe. So I just wanted to share that. I don't know if it's good news or bad news. <laughs> but um, I was interested if you guys could comment on institutionalized memory. Because you didn't talk about that. And it generally shows up in monuments. 
I mean, if you think about it as art, so it's sort of a physical um, manifestation of it. But today, when nobody remembers anything the same way, what happens with institutionalized memory and how do we codify that? So it's a little different. I think the chat GPT thing was a safety measure they put in after this whole explosion with the New York Times reporter. So they didn't, they now limit it so you can't have as long conversations because it can go off the rails. And also, you they don't want the, the chat bot thing to have a memory because it could go off the rails. So I think it could have, but then they eliminate it. That's my understanding of what happened. That seems right. Yeah. But remember, this is... This, they didn't this, go into that. Yeah, yeah. yeah this yeah. would be called like working memory. Yeah. So remembering something from a few seconds or minutes ago. Right. But now, ChatGPT and all these large language models have been trained on these giant corpuses of data, and they've been trained in such a way such that there's what are called weights, which is a machine learning term for just relationship between different aspects of the internal workings of the model that predict sentences and words, and that certainly could be called memory, right? That's a very large-scale semantic memory, yes. Um, so. Yeah, there's chat GPT. That's chat GPT. Institutional memory? And then the previous question as well. Uh, yeah. Well, I was wondering about the previous question. Something was on my mind earlier when we were talking about the way memory functions. Yeah. Namely, how similar it is to sort of uh, a lot of theological ideas about iconography and how icons are supposed to be sort of living. There's a, they have a life. What we sometimes also refer to the living constitution. That's another example of something that's in black and white and it's fixed, and yet it's supposed to have a sort of living quality to it. I think that somehow touches on the idea of plasticity in the brain. Does anyone want to respond to that? Yeah, I think for, I'll go for institutional and then the, the dialogue part, but so institutional uh, memories are memories of society and societies are entities, they are actually living entities and they have experiences, they have memories and, and the institutionalized or monuments are decisions that the society makes of what to remember. Uh, it's an explicit decision because these monuments are triggers, right? Whenever you go by them, it triggers. Um, so it, it's, uh, this is the, the concept of like shared memory and what the, the society is making. And there could be a dialogue about that, right? It's like uh, uh, people can argue which monuments we want to have and whatnot, but it tells you something about the society. And it can change, right? You can make a decision about a monument or a way to commemorate an event at some point and 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, you can make a different decision based on more information or a different committee <laughs> made up of different types of people and uh, and they can sit side by side almost in the sense of I think there's something to be said for retaining in some way the memory of the past choice that we now maybe regret or feel that we've outgrown because it's important to remember that we did that um, and not to pretend that we never did that. Um, but that notion of decisions can be undone or can evolve. Um, but I think Danielle is absolutely right. You know, what is an institution? Who are institutions? And, um, and we have to grapple with that and there's transparency. Um, and I, I think that's it's acknowledging this was the memory that we made 
can we make a new one? And can it be all the more powerful for the fact that we weren't on autopilot and that maybe this time it has a new level of resonance that the other one didn't have before? Yeah. Um, can I just go back to the dialogue? Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's such a, a beautiful uh, maybe final question because uh, the dialogue, the idea that dialogue is important um, really encompasses a lot of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the hippocampus as uh, the memory region and also the, the region that maps the environment. And we talked about memories as this uh, coherent line, right? There has to be continuity. Um, and for that space to happen, we need coordinates and we need reference point. And uh, I think dialogue is a reference point. This is why we're so miserable when we're lonely. We're kind of lost in space. Mm -hmm. But the minute you talk to someone, it, it anchors you to some reference point. And, and it also, through the sharing of the memory, it gives this anchoring. Um, mm -hmm. It gives your space meaning and something you can navigate uh, around. Yeah, that's beautiful. The other thing in the film that came out beautifully is the representation of a palimpsest, which Troy talked about, covering up, developing a, an image, covering it, and then painting over it and creating another image after that. I think that's interesting, and I have a feeling that connects to the question about why, when you're making an effort to remember a particular name, you might not come up with it unless you're distracted, because the covering up is some other act of something, something's being suppressed, let's say, and it's being covered, and that may be suppressed for a reason, right? And then when you try to search for it, you go, what the heck is that name again? And then when you stop making the effort, it can, some, it can emerge again. Right? You'll see the horse come out. I couldn't remember what I had painted before, to be honest with you. It was a great experience. It, the process of making the paintings and the animation was really echoed the process of remembering because I would make these thousands of painting stills in my studio. And I honestly have so many paintings that I can't remember what scene they originally were, like in my new films. So I have to categorize them in folders. Let's say it started as an image, uh, a painting scene of a movie theater, but now it's like a boat on a river. And I have no idea if I haven't written on the back of the painting all the stages it's been through. And then when I watch it, when I play it in motion, it's like I'm watching it for the first time. I have no memory of how it's changed over time. Yeah. No, we were looking to see whether there are any questions from the um, Zoom audience, uh, or the, oh. there's not today. So, anyone else have any questions before we wrap up? Come on, come on, yeah, please come up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of been touched upon. I hate going. I know, I know. We like to, we, it, it reports you better if you if you do that. It's sort of, I feel, touched upon a little bit, but this, for me what comes up is what is the relationship between memory and truth? You know, it's a problem in our society. Truth has become, to some degree, marginalized in my mind. It depends on what your perspective or your view. But I wonder from a purely neuroscientific way, how do you measure a memory is or way to really say this memory is true, or is it a false memory, or is it a memory that I want, a desired memory? <laughs> you know, that question is something that I'm very interested in. So, 
metric of truth. However, you could do an experiment where, let's say, you measure a brain signal when someone views a certain stimulus, and then you see if that same brain pattern of activity in the brain gets reinstated later, and you could judge how similar is the reinstatement to the original event. Um, and you could put a metric a little bit on that, which is how similar two patterns of our activity are. One that happened when you encoded something, and one that happened when you recalled it later. But that doesn't tell you anything about truth. I think you have to talk to a philosopher. Yeah, or yeah. Or yeah. Or or no, a, everything is an illusion, right? If I can give a somewhat philosophical answer to that, I think that when we talk about truth, one of the more coherent definitions is to say that it's descriptions of things the way they really are. But the word descriptions is very important in that because it means that truth can only exist where there are sentences, right? And descriptions, we know, are elastic. You can always cobble together a better one. And I think that the elasticity of our memories is related to the ephemerality, but it's also related to our ability to build upon them with greater or lesser uh, coherence. Right? So in a way, our memories are the vehicle for our ability to describe things, and therefore the sort of metric of truth in the end. But it also de sorry, yeah, depends on truth. You know, fiction writers always talk about how the work of fiction contains a lot of truth. It, you know, same with feature filmmakers, you know, that by taking liberties, you're able to get to a greater truth. And I, there's this, um, Sanford Meisner, who was this famous acting teacher, used to give direction to his students that acting was living truthfully under imaginary circumstances, which I love and which really I think about all the time with my painting, you know, like I'm imagining all of this stuff. It's you know my film's called a documentary, but there's not a single ounce of documentary footage in it, which I you know it's it's all imagination. So I think you can have truth and fiction at the same time. Uh, can I can I jump on? That? Yes, absolutely. I, my I sense that perhaps some of where your question came from is a frustration that I think a lot of people feel, regardless of their views in, say, the political realm of feeling like, you know, what is true, there's a lot of untruths. And I think part of why a lot of these untruths or these falsehoods have so much power and have become so dangerous is because they are speaking to a larger underlying truth. The, the one other comment I'll make about that is that, um, you know, I think this, we have this feeling, and I think this was dispelled to some degree in what we were talking about today, that memory is like a representational system, and that's all it is. So if it's a represent, representational system, we think, well, either it corresponds to the truth or it doesn't. And that may not be exactly how memory is or what, we, what we're calling memory. It's, it's, it partakes of representation, but that, it's much more dynamic, unlike a film recording or a transcription or whatever. So. Yeah, there are definitional distinctions to be made as well, right? When we say something is, is a truth or one is true to something, right? It's good. Often when we use the word true, we mean a kind of fidelity. Like if you're true to your partner or you're, you're true to the experience in the fictional work or something, right? But the idea of truth 
seems to be uh, something that requires a kind of articulation of some kind. Let's well, know your integrity. Yeah, our integrity, yeah. Okay, well, everyone, thank you so much for yeah, this thank incredible you for coming. Yeah. Thank you.